0: You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our God we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and so again this morning um, we pray that you would help us to see what you have said to us to see the wisdom and the insight and the revel- the divine revelation of what you have given us uh, we pray that you would help us by your spirit that it would sink deep into our hearts and our lives that we would see it as it points us to your glory, and your goodness to us in and through Jesus, and that you would lead us in the way of loving you uh, and loving our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about uh, a year ago, there was a podcast series uh, that uh, came out called Questioning Christianity, And in it, uh, author and pastor Tim Keller did a series of seven talks with follow-up Q and A sessions with a a live audience recorded uh, in New York City at Redeemer Church. And there's a number of things I just kind of wanted to say at the outset. There's a number of things uh, that we'll consider this morning that are indebted to Keller and some of his insights, specifically on his talk in justice in that series, justice, not injustice. His talk on justice. And whether you've uh, ever listened to Tim Keller or you've maybe never heard of him or maybe you've read everything that he's ever done, this is perhaps like one of my favorite things that he has ever produced. It's a fantastic resource uh, for you or for anyone you know that is really interested in considering Christianity and thinking about how is it that Christianity perhaps makes best sense of our world and our experience in the world. Uh, This morning, our text, which hopefully you appreciated how short it was, I think I win the prize for the shortest Deuteronomy text in this entire series. We have two laws that we're going to look at, uh, one related to runaway slaves and then this uh, instruction about charging of interest and, in a sense, the, the economic system for Israelite life. And these laws, along with others in this larger section of Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 24, I would argue is a window into this larger question of what do we owe another human being? So, what what do we owe each other? What do we owe another person? What, What we're talking about is human rights. Most, if not perhaps all the people that we, you know, do life with, people in our neighborhoods, people in our schools, people in our workplaces, believe, assume that human beings have certain rights. It's kind of just like an, of course, of course. Most people we know would say, of course, we should treat all people as equal, with equal dignity and honor and respect, and, and we ought to do this regardless of a person's race or a person's gender or how much money they make or how successful they are or how competent they are, that people are worthy of honor and respect. People are valuable just because they're human beings three things that I want us to think about this morning as we think about this idea of human rights and as we think about our text. The first, why we owe others. Then second, we'll think about these two examples of what we owe. And then finally, the unique motivation that the Bible gives us to actually support and do this. So first, uh, why we owe others. If you look at the, the origin of this idea of human rights, you know, like where did this idea come from, you would find that it actually comes from the Bible. Because if you look back into history, this is not how everyone thought. It was not and of course, in history until really like more recent and modern times. This idea of human rights, it didn't arise in other cultures outside of the influence of the West and where Christianity had a significant influence on the culture. So specifically uh, in that talk on justice that I just mentioned, Keller mentions a few different scholars. So for example, um, this guy named Larry Sedentop of Oxford University who has written Uh, that it was Christianity that came up with the idea that individuals had rights and that every single individual has equal rights. Or Brian Tierney, uh, who used to teach medieval history at Cornell University, whose work traced the modern notion of human rights back to medieval Christian Europe and their reflections on the Bible. And then you add to this list others like Friedrich Nietzsche and John Gray, atheists, all of whom agree that human rights, this idea of the equality of all people, comes from Christianity and from its reflection on the teachings in the Bible. But this is a huge problem in our secular world because if, if you don't believe in the Bible or God or the supernatural, how do you explain belief in human rights? And, and how do you motivate others to live in a way that promotes them. Where do you ground the idea of human rights apart from a belief in God and the supernatural? Human rights, what we owe other people, they have to be something that is really there. Something that is you know, discovered, not something that we just all decide to create or construct and vote in, otherwise it would be ultimately useless. So if we were to say, as some do, that, you know, well, human rights are there because we just all agree that they're there, we've, in a sense, voted them in as a society, well, then our society could decide at some point to unvote them in. And so a right is actually useless if it can just be done away with. But the other problem is, is that, of course, we can't just look to nature and say, of course, human rights. Uh, I don't know if you're into any animal shows. Years ago, there was this great show. It's not on Netflix anymore, Animal Planet. You watch Animal Planet. It's so awesome. But you do not see anything that would reflect what we come up with, human rights. I mean, nature is violent. The strong eat the weak. And the other huge problem is, how can we judge any part of this material world as good or bad if it's all that we have? Like if there is no supernatural order, no set of absolutes that we could hold up to this world and compare and say, okay, that is good. That's the way it's supposed to be. But this, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you don't have that, if this world is all there is, on what basis do we say that anything would be good or bad? And so here's kind of the problem with all this. If you look at our world, we can say what is, if that's all we look at. What is? There is abuse. There is oppression. There is violence. What is? There are nations that seek to take over other nations, that bomb cities, that kill civilians. Afghanistan, under Taliban rule, where women are kept from basics like education and treated terribly, we can say what is, but you can't say what ought to be. Unless you have something other than this material world, a standard by which you could judge and you could say, no, that is wrong. And it's always wrong. So if if one starts with the assumption that this world is all there is, which is obviously what many in our world do and, and much of what our society does as it has secularized, then it is just a complete leap in the dark to say that this one species, that humankind, are special and deserving of certain kinds of treatment but if you believe in the god of the bible for israel for example in what this text that we're looking at this morning it was in no way a leap in the dark because god had demonstrated and shown his people what he was like that he was a god of justice that he was a god who saves that he was a god who's active in the world redeeming things that are broken and making them new. And so from this place of trusting and knowing and worshiping God, Israel was to have a faith-formed rationality and imagination, a way of, of thinking that was shaped by belief in God that views people in a certain light and would lead them to treat people in a radically different way. You see, it is the God of the Bible who bends toward the weak and the powerless. He heard the cry of his people Israel when they were enslaved. And he comes and he rescues them and he defeats the oppressor. This is the God who Psalm 113 says is infinitely great. This, this God is far beyond what we could comprehend. And yet, this Psalm, Psalm 113 says he bends toward The needy. He's mercifully near to the vulnerable, near to the poor, near to the oppressed. And if God bends toward the needy and the vulnerable, then a society or a community that wants to reflect God must do the same. This is one reason, I think just to point it out, you know, at Trinity, our mission where we say, what what are we trying to do as a church? We are seeking to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. Why that is important because God's calling on his people is not only to bear the message of redemption in the world but to be an embodiment of that good news in the redeemed community of his people so that the way God's people function together the way that they live would be a visible and tangible sign of God's redeeming work. And this is what we see in these two laws. So let, let's actually look at these two laws, these two examples. Because God bends toward the needy and the vulnerable, the society that reflects God must do the same. And so we read in Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16, this amazing thing where it says, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place he sh- shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Everyone who writes on Deuteronomy says there is nothing like this in the entire ancient world. There's nothing like this. This is the complete opposite of what you find everywhere else in other ancient law codes, and we could even add a few centuries ago in our own laws. What you would expect, what everyone would expect is that slaves who run away face disastrous and dire consequences, and that anyone who helps a runaway slave would be subject to serious consequences. So you may be familiar with the law of uh, Hammurabi. The death sentence is prescribed for a runaway slave. And it's important for us, too, as, as, as we even think about this concept, this idea of slavery in Israel, to realize that what we're talking about and what the Bible is talking about here is nothing like American, and European chattel slavery of Africans. Slavery in Israel was not based on race. It was not lifelong. Slaves were to be released on the seventh year. It was more of a form of bankruptcy law. But what is significant to recognize is how this law I mean, it just overturns the way ancient and more recent modern forms of slavery worked. Because whether we're talking about Hammurabi or Greco-Roman slavery of the first century or African chattel slavery, the rights of the slave owner always take precedent over the slave. The right and the claim of the master is always higher. If the slave has any rights whatsoever, they are not equals. They, the slave is lower in status. Thus, any other form of slavery, the individual slave is subordinated under this larger institution of slavery in just the way that society worked. But that's not what we have here. Here, the rights and needs of a human being, a weak, needy, vulnerable human being, is privileged over that of the master. The need of a human being is given precedent over the institution and, and the way that society works. And so it doesn't matter whether this runaway slave is an Israelite or whether it's a foreigner who has fled into Israel for refuge, they are to be received. This person who is vulnerable and needy is not to be wronged in any way. They ought to be free to dwell with the rest of God's people. They're not to be patronized or controlled and told, here's where you can go. Here's where people like you are allowed to live. They are given freedom to choose where to dwell wherever it suits them. And, And this last part about the runaway slave choosing where they are to dwell is incredibly significant because it's saying so much more than just you have to give them freedom of choice. If you've been with us throughout Deuteronomy, let me ask you, listen to this language and, and think, have I heard this before? Have you heard the language, the place that he shall choose? That should sound familiar. This language occurs 11 times in the book of Deuteronomy, and except here, this is the only other occurrence where this is not the case, the other 10 times the same person is being referenced, and it's Yahweh, right? Israel's God, again and again in Deuteronomy, it is said about him, the place that Yahweh, your God, will choose. Do you see what is going on here? Like, do you see the significance of this language that is used exclusively about God in Deuteronomy being used of this slave who is seeking to get away from oppression? The logic is you are to let this person choose where they are to dwell. Why? Because they are made in God's image and they do what God does. This foreigner, this runaway slave who comes across your border, Israel, this person who is vulnerable, who could be used or abused or oppressed, you shall not wrong him. You shall give him the freedom to do what I do because they are made in my image. And this is how you are to see them. This is how you are to see each other. I mean, what, what we have here functionally undermines slavery. The identification of a runaway slave with Yahweh. Now, I would imagine some of you must be wondering if this is so, and if it's so clearly laid out here, then how is it possible that Christians, people who have God's word, how is it that they could participate and support slavery like what happened in our country? And to some extent, to be honest, I don't know. Because it is clear. And those who misread and justified their practices were terribly, terribly wrong. But I think a more helpful answer comes from John Newton. John Newton is probably most well-known for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. We sing some of his songs, other songs as well, like the new one we've been doing, Pensive Doubting, Fearful Heart. John Newton wrote that. He lived from 1725 to 1807. He was a pastor in England and a strong voice uh, in the fight to end slavery, the abolition movement in England. But as some of you may know, before he was converted, he was a captain of slave ships. And in his autobiography, Newton writes about when he first became a Christian and how he was at that time a part of the slave trade. And he writes about how, as, the, as a new Christian, for a period of time, he continued to participate in the trade and he continued to promote it. And he writes this, The reader may perhaps wonder, as I now do myself, that knowing the state of this vile traffic I did not recoil with horror at my own employment as an agent promoting it. Custom, example, and interest blinded my eyes. Think about those three. Custom. This is just how things are. This, it's just the way the world works. Example. I know some really good people. I know, I know Christian people that have slaves. Maybe it's not ideal. It should probably, you know, it should be a little more humane, but, but I don't need to be proactive in doing anything against it. Interest. It would cost a lot to change this. This would be incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. It would be very costly to me personally. He writes, now I look back and I just wince. It's easy for us to, you know, look back on history with judgment, and it was clearly wrong, and it was clearly evil. But the point is, where do perhaps custom, example, and interest blind us and keep us from bending toward the needy and the vulnerable? Where do they keep us from reflecting God in the way that we deal with others in the world think about your life think about you know your school your office your workplace think about the things that you do you know for work maybe you're a teacher or you're in trades or you're in the business world or you're a lawyer you're a doctor where are the vulnerable people the needy people that you come in contact with who are those people who are low in on the social hierarchy Who are the people who are most likely to not be treated as people? What would it look like for you to recognize their humanity, to treat them like a fellow image bearer? Let's look at the second example. So verses 19 through 20, we read about this uh, ban on charging interest. And in the ancient world, it it was very normal to charge interest and charge high levels of interest on uh, financial loans as well as various goods. Uh, The ranges could be 20%, even up to 50%. And if people need a loan, it's likely that they're in a situation where there's some kind of immediate need. And in ancient times as well as up to modern, these are opportunities for people to pray against the needy. The reason why uh, interest is not forbidden on foreigners, scholars theme, seem to think, is likely because of the necessity of Israel doing commercial trade with other nations who would be charging interest. But the main like, intent of this law, if you look especially at other laws that are very similar to this in Exodus 22, 25, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37, you see that the clear intent and point of this instruction is to protect the needy. The intention is that those who are in need are not taken advantage of and used by others with power and means to further increase their wealth and status. Rather, the Israelites are to be generous in all of life seeking to help, whether that be money or food or whatever, because God has been generous to them. God has given them this land. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, this was interesting to me, I'd never really noticed this before, but there are numerous places like Psalm 15, Ezekiel 18, where one of the defining marks of a righteous person is someone who lends to those in need without interest. Because God bends toward the needy and the vulnerable, the people that reflect God and know their God and want to follow their God, they are to do the same. So, if we were to apply this to today, I mean, it's easy to think of uh, certain things like various kinds of predatory loans, uh, perhaps payday loans, especially where these kind of places are set up amongst the most poor and often take advantage of the poor, further just trapping people in endless cycles of poverty. But there's probably all sorts of ways that we just, it's hard to even see the way in which our economic system favors and privileges the wealthy and doesn't bend toward the poor and the vulnerable. Now, this is just a, I feel like I have to say this disclaimer. You all know this, but I just need to state it. I am obviously not an economist, uh, unlike some in this room. And uh, (laughs) I'm trained in, you know, theology and interpreting the Bible, and I have no idea what kind of policy is a good policy or a bad policy and that sort of thing. Nevertheless, uh, this last week I read an article in the New York Times called The Dirty Secret of Credit Card Reward Programs, and this article lays out how there is a growing demand for credit cards with the best perks and the best bonuses And that the people who qualify for these cards and the people who use these cards the most tend to be the more wealthy in society. And then you add to this that the U.S. has some of the highest credit card processing costs in the world, which the merchants then obviously have to pass down on consumers by charging more, whether one uses a card or not. And then what comes of this is lower income people end up paying higher prices and not getting any of the benefit while those with means receive the rewards. Let me also say, I love Costco and I love my Costco card. And a month ago, if you have a Costco card, you might know, I'm sure you do, that a month ago you got that, you know, all the points for the year and the check came and it was like, oh, this is great. I'm not saying that you should feel guilty for having a credit card or we should all burn our credit cards and get rid of cards, but I, I think this illustrates one of the things that's so helpful about the book of Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy challenges us to think and to ask questions, to question things that we all just kind of take for granted. A really small and practical example of this with the credit card thing, because I think we do just take these things for granted. But of course, if we think, you know, 200 years ago, or certainly 2,000 years ago, a lot of people would have said the same thing about slavery. And yet, you have Christians. Like one of these guys, one of the Cappadocian fathers, a bishop in the 4th century, Gregory, who is sitting with the Bible and he's pondering over it and he's letting it sink in. And perhaps one of the earliest people to say this, he definitively says slavery is wrong and it's always wrong because of the image of God. And 1,700 years later, there's a lot of the world that completely agrees at least with the idea that, yes, slavery is wrong, and it's always wrong. And that's the point of this, you know, credit card illustration, because I have no idea how we would change the system. I have no idea the best policy, but the point of this is that Maybe we can't do anything about it at this moment, but it's like the seeds of these ideas get planted in us and they start to sprout and they start to grow and they start to question the things in this world that we just kind of assume are the way they are and the way they always will be. And perhaps some of us, some of you who are in high school or going to college or, you know, in your careers, in the things that you're doing, you will question these things. You will say, no, that's not the way it should be done. We should do it a different way. We should do it in a way that reflects God. And through the community of the church, these seeds of wisdom, and these seeds of what God has given us in Deuteronomy, begin to sprout. And perhaps in 100 years or 200 years or 500 years, there will be different ways of doing things that through the church will have blessed the world that reflect more of what God is like and what is just. God bends toward the needy and the vulnerable, and so the society, the community, the people that want to reflect him do the same. Finally, what's what's this unique motivation that the Bible gives us? This life that we're called to of bending toward the needy and the vulnerable, it's never just some abstract principle or some rule we are to follow. From Israel all the way to us, it is always first. It flows from the lived experience of God's people because God has bent to our need. Remember, the Israelites, they are a nation of runaway slaves. And so those who had experienced the harshness and the degradation of slavery, the violence of slavery, God came and drew near and he delivered them and he brought them out and he freed them. And so now they are to be a nation that is kind to the runaway slave and provides a place of refuge. Israel was to care for the needy in the way that they handled money. And of course, Everything they have is a gift from God. God had brought them into this land. It was his land. And so they were to be generous toward one another as God had been generous to them. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, this is your story too. And yet in Jesus we have even more reasons than this to, to motivate us to reflect God's way of life and our life together because our story is the ultimate expression of god bending toward the needy because god came down and took on flesh and drew near that he might redeem us he delivered us from slavery to sin from the slavery of the fear of death that was coming from the master of satan He freed us, and while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The eternal Son of God, Philippians 2, tells us, who was equal with God, who had all the rights and the privileges and the glory of being God, didn't consider that high position something to be held onto for his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself. He made himself nothing He took the form of a slave and he died for us to redeem us. If we have eyes to see that, and if we continue to lean into that story, which is our story, as that trickles into our life, as as we experience God's grace to us in Jesus, as we hear these things in Deuteronomy, it moves us to be people who want to reflect the grace and mercy of God that has been shown to us.